Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Hello, and welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. The autonomic nervous system forms part of our peripheral nervous system and regulates involuntary physiological processes, including heart rate, blood pressure, respiration, and a few others. It encompasses three distinct categories, namely the sympathetic, the so-called flight or fight pathway, um, the parasympathetic, more the relaxation, digestive, and the enteric. Too few of us realize that although it is autonomic, it is not automatic. This means that we are not powerless to influence and change it. Biofeedback is a method of learning to control one's bodily function by monitoring blood pressure, pulse, muscle tension, and sometimes brain waves using a device. The whole goal here is to enhance heart rate variability, a measure of recovery potential and resilience that can eventually help us to attain a state of heart-brain coherence. And we will go into all these concepts in, in the discussion. This implies a more favorable internal environment that can increase energy and resilience and lower stress levels. It can also make one less distracted and even confer an increased sense of community awareness, um, attachment and belonging. In chronic pain, people often describe their lives as being quote unquote, out of control. This sentiment can just as easily resonate at times with anyone living in this time deficient and stress loaded age. All of which begs the question, so why aren't more of us making use of this foundational key to improved health? My guest today, Dr. Ron Garbo, is with us to shed way more light on the subject. A brief bio follows. Dr. Garbo is board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation and neuromuscular electrophysiology. After 24 years practicing polytrauma rehabilitation and integrative pain management, Dr. Garber was recently named Director of Cardiac and Wellness Integration at the Virginia Commonwealth University. At VCU, he serves as an authority for pragmatically applying heart rate variability science using wearable technology and digital health advances for the Veterans Administration and Department of Defense Research Consortium for the Long-Term Impact of Brain Injury. He has published a synopsis of his novel methodology, Autonomic Rehabilitation, Adapting to Change, in the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Clinics of North American Journal in 2020. Long ago, he was the Ohio State University's top male scholar-athlete and the university's first walk-on All-American wrestler. He delivered a 50th anniversary keynote presentation for the Association of Applied Psychophysiology and Biofeedback in 2019. Dr. G, you are most welcome to HealthScape. It's wonderful to have you with us. 
I'm happy to be here, Trevor. Thank you very much. Dr. G, in a stressed out society, the need for autonomic control is obvious. For one thing, how to survive the daily stress. But what if you have a chronic physical or mental illness? It is well known that being in a permanent or semi-permanent high arousal sympathetic state can exacerbate or make worse any physical or mental chronic disease, as it's not the type of internal environment that is conducive to recovery. So why are so many people still unaware of this? Oh, well, the literature is, is everywhere in every different direction and marketing, you know, marketing dollars are everywhere. Um, so it's hard to rise above the noise when you have truly uh, okay. something of value. So rising above the noise is what I would say. Um, and if I may, uh, vocabulary to me is incredibly important. And so yeah. if I could add a few things, uh, I'm looking to uh, teach people. So physician means educator. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe one of my major roles is educating people to learn how to harness the body brain connection, uh, the biopsychosocial model. And so I like harness over control um, and to help guide the autonomic nervous system in a healthy direction. Sometimes you can't con totally control it. So I like harness. And I think the modern thing that we're really struggling with is what I would call, it's not necessarily overactivation, it is persistent activation of the sympathetic nervous system. Right. So a very healthy athlete, uh, almost there's, no, there's really no such thing as an overstimulation. Uh, it's really okay. about persistent and, and how it depletes the parasympathetic system and depletes you and how fatigue starts to play a role in the decision-making. And we have both physical and emotional consequences to one, persistent hypervigilance from persistent sympathetic activation. And then the other is uh, the fatigue associated with constant hypervigilance that then causes autonomic inflexibility that bleeds into the night. And then you do not have restorative uh, recovery. And that's the fundamental difference in athletic burnout. Yes. Being thrust into persistent sympathetic activation with concussion, uh, mm -hmm. PTSD, um, uh, a cytokine storm from COVID, there are lots of events that can thrust you into persistent sympathetic activation. Uh, and that's my target, uh, right. is to right. create some flexibility in the system. Some flexibility. Okay, thank you for that. Um, people write off the autonomic nervous system as unconscious and automatic and therefore uncontrollable, but we know we can influence it. Does this apply to everyone who has a strong desire to improve it and is prepared to put in the time? Or do, do we understand that some people might not be a suitable group? So first of all, um, let's take a moment and be thankful if we're part of the group that has the ability to control their diaphragm and to control their bladder. And so, so the populations you're talking about, I see patients who don't have the ability to walk control their right. bladder, control their diaphragm, they're on a ventilator. So, or they have an arrhythmia. So 
but having said that, if, if we're talking about a general population that has control of these bodily functions, yes, uh, there are ways to uh, modulate, hack, uh, or find a wedge into the autonomic nervous system. And for me, the biggest shift in physiology, the biggest inroad uh, or wedge into the autonomic nervous system. Let me give you an example. So blinking, mm -hmm. you can do that voluntarily and you can do that autonomically. Right. Breathing with the diaphragm, you can do both as well. But there's one more than any other that has the greatest shift in physiology. And that is by far this massive muscle, the diaphragm, which then can modulate the efficiency of how the heart works. Now, then the next thing is uh, the electrical signal from the heart, okay, compared to the electrical signal of the brain. The brain is in microvolts, the heart is in millivolts. So it's an order of magnitude of 10, the electrical signal. So much, much bigger and more durable. And then mm -hmm. compare the heart to a, 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 a limb muscle like the quadriceps. And the way the quadriceps is wired, for me to understand the electrical activity, I have to put a needle in through the skin and into the muscle and listen to it with an EMG instrument because the way it's wired, it's a very small electrical signal. Right. But for the heart, it's such a large and durable uh, uh, signal, large, by far the largest electrical signal in the body. We can do that with a surface electrode. So, so when it comes to wearable technology, which will transform healthcare, the most durable, there isn't any question, would be ECG biofeedback as opposed to EEG biofeedback or some other sweat sensor or anything. So one clearly stands out pragmatically. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's, that's important to know, uh, to realize. Um, so the heart va va um, rate variability is obviously the goal. If you could just speak more about that, please, and the importance and, and the, the reasoning behind it. Sure, sure. This is a tough one to understand. This is the best explanation I have. Okay. Uh, uh, Trevor, if uh, you're sitting there with a heart rate of 60 and I'm sitting here with a heart rate of 80, it's intuitive that you are more physically fit than I am doing the same amount of work with less heartbeats, okay? Right. Now, the sound man that we have on, he happens to have an average heart rate of 60 as well. Now, Trevor, you are varying between 58 and 62 for an average of 60. And our sound man, he averages between 50 and 70, a much greater variation between beat to beat. And right. so, our, so now uh, our sound man is both physically and emotionally healthier than you are. You would be more resilient than me. Okay, we know athletes are more resilient, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're flexible. So our sound man, he is both uh, more efficient and uh, physically and emotionally more, more, more sound than you are. So does that help? So the larger that variation, mm -hmm. and then it becomes intuitive from there. If you catch that concept, then how would you vary your HRV? Well, the biggest modifier of that is your diaphragm. 
Right. So then intuitively, well, wouldn't a strong diaphragm increase your HRV? And yes, indeed. And these are generalities, okay, for, for, for right. uh, learning about heart rate variability. So, so a huge modifier of HRV is indeed exercise. And we know that exercise also is important in concussion and depression and so forth. So, so you can increase your HRV you know, manually by doing exercise. But that doesn't necessarily give you autonomic flexibility or cognitive flexibility. And so the beautiful science of uh, heart rate variability biofeedback and inducing resonance, uh, you can expand your HRV real time and in the moment with your breath and your thoughts. And the practice of it creates creates flexibility in the system and expands your HRV real time, which then sends vagal tone to the brain. It tells the brain the body is now calmed down and now you have a chance to get out of your threat centers in your brain and get to your frontal lobes where who you are, your purpose and your values reside and you can do more creative problem solving other kinds of decisions than just fight or flight or freeze uh, uh, and to get out of threat mode. So, so, so I like to say um, uh, uh, when you induce resonance, it is like shifting gears, right? So if mm -hmm. you're driving around town in second gear, that is uh, high RPMs, high energy. You're spitting out all kinds of, you're loosening bolts, you know, but you're driving around and I'm driving around, you can hardly tell the difference. But after several months, your car is gonna have more problems than mine. So, so inducing resonance is like being able to downshift and do some highway driving and cruising a bit. Right. The practice, okay, now I'm making a distinction between doing it real time and a practice. The practice over six to eight weeks, I say is transmission fluid. It helps you have more flexibility to shift out of second and third and fourth gear as you need, depending on how the external environment changes. It is nighttime. It is not time to have your brain run hot, right? So you need to downshift. Mm -hmm. And so you need the flexibility to unstick yourself. So people right. are stuck. All these disorders that are sympathetically mediated people get stuck, they lose autonomic flexibility. And they all, I believe, they all fundamentally need some transmission fluid. Right. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense for sure. So these are attainable, attainable uh, objectives very much by using simple means. It's almost, I think, for some people, will come across as, well, what's the catch? Because we're so used to complicated scientific, well, not that this isn't, I'm just saying uh, high tech uh, solutions and stuff um, that, you know, simple thing like breathing doesn't always meet with a lot of credibility initially anyway, until the explanation is given. So yeah. it's good to know. Can I help with that too? Yes, please do. Uh, so, so, so I, you know, uh, meditation has gotten more credibility in the last 10 years. Right. Uh, and it's not a fad, 
there, there, there are some underpinning things. Uh, mm -hmm. Meditation is several things. Okay. Uh, it is, it is a breathing practice, but its weakness is it's subjective. So some people just don't quote unquote, get it. So, so heart rate variability biofeedback can be the training wheels to the physiological aspect of meditation. But meditation has several other things like uh, appraisal. Is this text message worth getting angry about and wasting energy on? And is it a true threat, right? Or is that guy in the bush a true threat? Well, that may be a true threat. So, so it is, helps you with appraisal, it helps you with decision-making, uh, acceptance of you know, grieving a loss. So meditation is many things, but when somebody is stuck and doing very poorly, and I hear this very often, oh, I tried meditation, it's not for me. Well, then maybe we need to take a step back and let's get some training wheels. Or maybe somebody has done meditation, they practiced a long time and they're now still stuck. And I say, well, maybe you're a high school breathing athlete and we need to get you to become a college level or professional level breathing athlete. And let's take a step back and let's use some training wheels. And eventually we want to get you up. But if you want to be ultra, ultra simple, <laughs> you are stuck and desperate and you want to feel better. You know, I can't. This is the biggest claim that I can make. And obviously it's not immediate, but you can, you can get out an analog clock with a big fat second hand, all right? And you can breathe five seconds in, five seconds out. Now, you know, uh, um, there are labs to identify everybody's exact resonance frequency, but, you know, I, I'm now, giving you a starting point and people can tell you about modifications to breathing, blah, blah, blah. But I will tell you the most studied and the starting point would be with an analog clock, five seconds in, five seconds out, no breath hold, and then using diaphragmatic belly breathing uh, with your belly, not your upper chest. And, and there's excellent data that if you did that 10 minutes, twice a day for six to eight weeks, you will, uh, number one, you will have done an exercise. If you aren't able to tolerate exercise at this point, it is a pre-exercise exercise, number one. And number two, you will feel better. It will not necessarily solve all your problems. It's still just breathing. Mm -hmm. But if you have absolutely no means other than uh, an analog clock uh, and you have some discipline, you can feel better at a, you know, Sometimes you can feel better immediately. Sometimes it can take you six to eight weeks or more. Uh, but, it, but at least feeling better, I won't you know, claim how much you'll feel better and, and, and how life-changing it will be. But uh, the autonomic nervous system will be more flexible and have more transmission for, with that practice six to eight weeks. And then obviously there are many tools out there and many breathing practices that can be modified for particular situations. Right. Yeah, no, that's certainly good advice and accessible to everyone. You know, it, it always strikes me that the, the things that seem to work certainly from the chronic pain aspect is mindfulness, meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy, biofeedback, yoga, 
And all of these have one thing, well, they've got a few things in common, but to me, the overarching most simplest, this most simple uh, um, characteristic is they slow one down, which kind of raises the question, are we so riled much of the time? I guess we are when we in sympathetic overdrive that we're not even sure of what we want to achieve clearly um, regarding our thoughts, actions and speech. Uh, so many of us feel at that, that level on occasion, and it's it's a good thing to remember. Go back to basics, as you describe. I mean, it's it's a, certainly an eight-week commitment, but 20 minutes a day is not long, and the results are there. You say from many published studies, and it's widely used, as you know, chronic, in chronic obviously in chronic pain, the belly breathing. But we forget how powerful it is sometimes. Yeah, and, and, and here's some two critical points because I see some, some people in really difficult situations. Um, one of the things is, is uh, slowing down and breathing, uh, your fears bubble up. And they could be uh, past fears. They could be future fears, like in pain patients. It's typically fear of future pain or fear of future injury. With PTSD, they're triggered by past events and memories bubble up. And, and so sitting quietly, breathing, and letting fears bubble up, bubble up is not easy. It is a very difficult thing. Mm -hmm. And we now have countless electronic and digital ways to keep us busy. And so, so there are many forms and they're technically forms of avoidance and distraction. Um, and some are healthier than others, but right? Even, even being obsessed with exercise could potentially be, quote unquote, an uh, unhealthy avoidance, right? At a certain level, right? If I'm not going to be yeah. happy unless I run 100 miles a week, right? And I've seen people like that. Yeah. Uh, that that's gotten to, a, despite the stress fracture in my foot. Now it's become unhealthy. Mm -hmm. so, so, so sitting with one fears is a pivotal, pivotal concept. And, and that's another pushback against meditation uh, that, that people are, are, have tried it and are scared to go back. And so it really has to be then broken down in, in a room of trust with a person of trust. Um, and there's just no other way. And the way I say for my PTSD patients is before anyone takes you into that black box in the past, which you are in control of, we never have to go into the black box unless you want to. But I don't even want to go there until you are skilled and armed with your diaphragm. You know how to wield that tool to modulate at least the physiology and have some confidence with your physiology. Yes. And, then, yeah. and then the other thing that seems to get in the way, again, because we have so many distractions, is um, someone with PTSD as a child, right? 40 to 50% of women with chronic pain uh, had some sort of uh, abuse as a child. And it's during the period of time when their brain is growing. Mm -hmm. So, I now see them in their 40s and they've been in threat mode for, you know, 30 some years, uh, but they don't know how to live, but they know how to survive because they've been in survival mode for the entire time. So 
So the autonomic nervous system did its job with survival, but it, the person really doesn't know how to live. And if we want to get towards being able to live, I think it's requisite that you learn this skill and have some ability to sit with your fears and create some flexibility. And so what can happen is um, they, they then induce this resonance at five seconds in, and it's now a completely different sensation than they've ever felt. Now the brain is so hypervigilant that it interprets this very healthy thing as threat. You with me? Mm-hmm. So, so, so they perceive it as threat and they never want to go back and they tell that to the practitioner and we'll say, okay, well, let's go do acupuncture. This is a critical moment where I can come in as a physician if they're, if they're working with a biofeedback person or I can come in as a physician and say cardiovascularly, this is a very energy efficient, very healthy state. It is your brain misinterpreting it as threat. Obviously, threat is scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is actually healthy. And this is actually exactly the biggest boulder in front of you to, that is keeping you from a whole health trajectory. I, don't, I, I believe people can get better with many, many different treatments. But actually changing the trajectory of one's health, I think, is requisite to be able to sit with your fears and to be able to sit with that sensation and learn to have it give you comfort as opposed to fear, because the brain is on fear autopilot for everything. And it is such a significant physiological shift. It is interpreting this healthy thing that we have as babies and we lose over time and uh or injury or or whatever and now could be misinterpreted as threat yeah i can see that in a highly uh, threatened environment you know when the drawbridge is up and everyone's and they're hunkered down um the discomfort um the uh misinterpretation of something just because it's unfamiliar is far worse than the discomfort of the um, hypervigilance, which is well known. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, just time for a brief commercial break. Or we'll be right back. Um, you're listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell, speaking to Dr. Ron Garbo about the autonomic nervous system regulation. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also the Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life.
You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. You're listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell, speaking with Dr. Ron Garbo about autonomic nervous system regulation. There's something I want to bring up, uh, Ron. The treatment of chronic pain, as we know, should be multimodal and adopt a biopsychosocial approach. Uh, But it's interesting that most of the treatment efforts we see globally is, you know, targets medications and injectables, um, occasionally surgery and physical therapy, sometimes alternative medicine. Um, Of course, uh, these interventions are important in providing episodic uh, relief and much needed respites, such as in the case of injection therapy, but all are temporary measures that don't really address the issue of trying to remove the cause, which after first two harm we're supposed to be doing, if possible, remove the cause. Now, in order to change the maladaptive neuroplastic changes, obviously, we have to focus on behavioral issues, thought patterns, areas of focus. Um, And every chronic pain expert feels Um, nearly everyone feels that the psychosocial aspects must be dealt with as well in order to see recovery. And yet we see that patients who have had a very piecemeal experience of this essential treatment, um, do you see that improving in the near future, perhaps? I do. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm very optimistic. I think a classic way to look at this is to compare uh, private practice with the VA system. Um, Mm -hmm. The VA system in the United States for veterans um, is just for many people, it's it's frustratingly slow and the pace in the private sector is quite fast, but payment is what leads everything. And so uh, if we're talking about true value, uh, the VA system is pointed in the right direction uh, of incorporating uh, uh, things that are truly of value. However, the pace can be frustratingly slow. In the private sector, I would say the pace is absurdly fast and it's financially driven. It's just heading in the wrong direction. Uh, so mm-hmm. while, while we publish things of great value, uh, all the drivers and, and the way to get people to think differently can be harder than anything. So trying to, so, so healthcare you know, right now is, is a specialty driven, organ system driven health uh, uh, pathology prevention system. So you have a problem with your heart, you go see the cardiologist, you have a problem with your GI system, you go see the GI. Uh, so physical medicine and rehabilitation, we're a jack of many trades. So at VCU, uh, we're developing what I think will possibly uh, be one of the best autonomic centers in the country. And people with autonomic disorders, um, and those of you who have them know you've fallen between the specialist cracks between, and have seen several different specialists uh, and struggle to get a go- coherent plan. So. So, but then sometimes you see people in the wellness community, the performance community, the rehabilitation community, the functional medicine community, 
and that is a a, a trajectory based right so mm -hmm. so performance and wellness is towards something as opposed to preventing uh, uh, an organ problem that's based on reimbursement, not value. And so sh making this massive shift towards wellness and towards value is happening. Uh, it, you know, it can be frustratingly slow, uh, but it is happening. And, um, and I'm optimistic as, you know, so this is why I like heart rate variability. Why? Because the literature is so expansive, just about cancer, diabetes, heart disease, depression, PTSD, anxiety, concussion, chronic pain, reduced HRV in, in huge studies and stroke. Uh, huge studies have shown, well done studies have, reviews have shown reduced HRV is a measure in all those disorders. So I use that when I talk to clinicians and residents that I train, I try and use that as our lodestar biomarker. Let's work towards whole health. And this right. is a biological marker that we can track with surface monitoring uh, towards both physical and emotional health. And I am completely devoted to doing what I can to convince you to do whatever health behaviors mm -hmm. increase your HRV the breathing included, and the supportive things around it also. So, so there's different ways that, are, that can induce the vagal break or the recovery system. And one is breathing in resonance. Float tanks, uh, acupuncture. Um, there's just do, uh, simply massaging your carotid uh, artery. Uh, uh, a cold splash to the face. These are all parasympathetic. Again, the one you can take everywhere with you and have the biggest is the breathing, but there are dozens of ways to engage the break. Right. Now, that doesn't get you across the finish line though, because there are two independent levers. The other is the, is the sympathetic nervous system, the foot with the, so race car drivers, you know, rally car drivers, they drive with two feet not one foot, because there's a delay. And we have high performance vehicles. So all the breathing does is engage the brake. You still have to let go of the gas pedal. And so let's look at different ways you could do that. You could do a steli ganglion block, right? Jam a needle into the neck uh, and inject something. Uh, I could give you a beta blocker, a medication, that has some health benefits, but also has some risk. Or what other things, if we're gonna think out of the box, right? I believe you're an out of the box thinker, Trevor. Uh, what are some- I mean, I suppose. Yeah, so, so what else would uh, let go of the gas pedal? And that's what I believe the essence of acceptance, you know, within yes. the 12-step program, yes. uh, the serenity prayer. Uh, I believe trust is the opposite of fear. Right. Uh, I believe uh, when you're stuck trying harder, when you try too hard, you drive your HRV down and you are also, you keep, you keep trying harder and your gas pedal still stays down. So 
there's this notion of letting go I talk about. So mm -hmm. I believe the not latching mechanism between uh, the threat centers of your brain, the limbic system, and getting to your frontal lobes, that latching mechanism is not trying harder. It's letting go. So you have to let go to your frontal lobes. Uh, and so, so I could give you a beta blocker, but what if you did the hard work of forgiving or acceptance or letting go or trusting or trying to have hope? Uh, those are forms of letting go and even of the gas pedal. Yeah, and even being your authentic self, you know, it's not some achievement, your authentic self, it's actually stripping off what is not you, the extra baggage that yes. one carries. And yet we are called on to have certain persona, persona, um, you know, in, in our work and, and groups, community yes. often, um, one can tweak it to an extent, but um, it's not always possible to completely eliminate in my experience. If if I have to be a certain weight to be a, a good and attractive person, if I have to have a certain letter grade on a test to be a good person, yes. if I have to get a certain time in a race to be a good person and to like myself, you, you'll never let go of the gas. It'll mm -hmm. never happen. If, 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 I, if I am good enough and the results will be the results um, with all my preparation, um, you know, if I am adequate to being a decent person and liking myself, that's, that can be some really hard work to get to. And the breathing can help get you there. Yes. When it keeps bubbling up that I'm inadequate because I haven't achieved this number or this letter, um, when that just keeps coming up with your breathing mm -hmm. and you start having more flexible thinking, you then are, and you have a little bit of coaching, you are then getting closer to make these critical decisions. And, right. and I believe people, countless people have changed the trajectory of their lives over a millennium. Um, right. And if you ask them, they can typically tell you there is a moment when they made a critical decision. I don't mm -hmm. believe it's about behavioral change. Yes, I want you to behavioral change. I want you to do the breathing practice to get transmission through. But the trajectory changer, the letting go of the gas, that's really about some sort of decision um, and how you interact with your internal self and the external world and how you're going to adapt to those changes. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that, um, you know, that realization moment is we see it as a, a aha or epiphanic a uh, moment, but it's it's can be traced back a long time, incremental to a certain tipping point or level, and we know we're going to be okay. You'll speak to people who recovered from uh, a tumor or from a serious uh, chronic disease, and they said, "I woke up one day with worse system, but somehow felt curiously um, confident." that this, I would survive this well. And yeah. it, it's it's kind of, it is, it comes as an epiphany, but it's probably, I mean, I always think it's the accumulation of smaller things. Um, I don't know. One of, one of the difficult conversations to have, you know, being yes. a clinician that's never had cancer, and I have to talk to somebody who has cancer, right? So yeah. I'm not judging, uh, but I know somebody 
this metastatic cancer has at least five fears. Fear of future injury, fear of future death, fear of future loss of dignity, fear of future financial destiny, you know, decimation. Uh, all, these, all these fears that they're locked into. And, and you, know, you can shift your emotion. And we showed in a randomized controlled trial that shifting emotion with your breath can be done. It can be a learned skill and it's healthy and efficient. And you still have that skill months later. So I want to get somebody like that to feel gratitude, right? So I don't, yeah. I don't talk about going to your happy place because this isn't a happy situation. Yeah. However, there may be a way to feel grateful for being with a grandchild tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so, so, and, and, and so you can do the breathing, five in, five out, shift your emotion with the help of some devices and some coaching, you can shift your emotion to a healthier state and that is parasympathetic breaking, okay? Right. But this movement from fear of future X, Y, Z to being in the now and grateful, right? So some of the work, you know, acceptance that uh, you may not have control of tomorrow, but uh, what can you do for your health today? And that would be shift your emotion, get energy efficient, save some energy so your surveillance system can work better and feel grateful for what you do have. So um, I, I won't talk to them about a happy place or a calm place. Mm -hmm. let's, let's find something, let's figure out something, you know, that they're grateful for and help mm -hmm. make that shift. And you can know if you can get that done, that at least, you know, along with your chemotherapy, you've done what you can in this moment to create a better physiological state to fight your cancer. And you're more likely to enjoy tomorrow with your grandchild uh, yeah. and live in the moment. So these things, you know, the, I don't believe it's an accident that these things are linked. Um, and in no way would I ever judge somebody who struggles you know, to feel yeah. grateful with all this, mm -hmm. it's absurdly difficult, but that's the goal. And mm -hmm. I know that that's the goal, uh, safely, objectively, healthy, and so forth. Yeah, I, I, I rely heavily on never underestimate the accumulation of daily small advantages. Um, you know, it's, it's something that we can scoop and at the end of the day, whatever our challenges are in life, whether they're health or uh, financial or, um, you know, professional, we can really only do our best efforts given the prevailing circumstances. And that is enormously liberating because if you're feeling really badly, then obviously the performance for that day is not going to be stellar. And you hopefully tomorrow will be better kind of thing. It sounds a bit dismissive at first, but it, it does work and it gets through to, let's say, a certain number of people where they, they realize everything that is done daily is important. Yep. And, and that gets back to, uh, the, for me, the goal isn't achieving control. Uh, no. it's, it's about harnessing uh, what you have the ability to change. And um, if it, you, you, with your diaphragm, uh, you have uh, hopefully 
you have the ability to, to shift your physiology at least. And, and, that, and the science of the breath uh, and heart rate variability, I believe is the start to a hopeful process. Mm -hmm. uh, this brings me to a point, this business of, you know, like we're supposed to look at the biopsychosocial, but if you look at what's happening, there's very little direction on it. Um, and it brings me to an, in my head, this is an ally topic. Science seems, not seems, but is uncomfortable with certain things like thinking patterns, um, emotions, behavior that can be measured, I suppose, better. But, um, but this is the, the very categories. These are the very categories that target the unhelpful and maladaptive neuroblastic changes in the brain that cause, that cause and promote chronic pain and drive it. Uh, I think that there's, the problem is that emotions are regarded somehow as not overly worthy of scientific um, investigation. I mean, sure, there's studies. And um, while it's very clear to us from an experiential perspective that emotions are extremely important, I mean, choice of a life partner, choice of a profession, even the way people vote is very often emotive, even among the most educated and, and most intelligent. So it seems that if, if something cannot, it has too many elbows to fit in comfortably with the scientific approach, it kind of gets cut loose or uh, minimized a little bit. Um, yeah. And we don't seem to have, and so the, I guess Look, this idea that we're having the narrative now, you know, the science, the science, as though it's immutable and it's fixed and not a tool, which it is an excellent tool that's pr uh, producing great results overall. But it it does it's not a it's not universal in the sense that when things become too complex, you can't shoehorn it into a randomly controlled uh, double-blind study, for example. And I just feel there's not enough awareness of this. So people will say, well, um, how many papers are there um, on this? And not many. And it's, well, it, it, it's not, it can't be worthwhile. Yet we know for experiential, like in medicine, for example, a lot of the stuff, it's nearly all com uh, highly complex. And a lot of our knowledge is experiential. Well, Trevor, let me give you a little bit of hope and a peek in the future. Okay. So, so first of all, facetiously, I say the biopsychosocial model starts not by accident with bio, and, yeah. and uh, bio uh, is spelled HRV, and it's in all caps, bold, and so that is again the research biomarker for both physical and emotional health. And let me give you an example of what I believe. So this is pure opinion now, okay? Mm -hmm. But this is what I believe someday will happen. So if we, we already know that PTSD, uh, that HRV is probably the best uh, physiological biomarker of PTSD, okay? And then there's something called exposure therapy, which I'm not a particular fan of. Um, it, it, it does work. It does bring people back and relive their experience and keep reliving their experience and, and maybe get bored with reliving that experience. But the dropout rates are huge. 
okay? Mm -hmm. And that's going in the past and reliving it all. And it's exhausting. So now, if, if funding is available for 24-hour uh, HRV monitoring, right, with ECG, and, and let's, let's toss finances aside, uh, let's toss aside uh, that the data is secure, right? Your employer and insurance carriers don't get the data. Okay, let's toss those concerns aside and let's just track your HRV and you have an appointment tomorrow morning at nine o'clock and you know you're going to spend 50 minutes talking about past events. Mm -hmm. and your sleep is destroyed that night. Right. And then during that visit, you're incredibly anxious and then you're incredibly anxious for the next hours or days so now you've trashed your hrv for one to three days okay mm -hmm. and i can then potentially with a good study then somebody will prove that the dropout rates might be due to exhaustion physiological exhaustion Right. And now you're going to compare to different treatment modalities. Well, what about a treatment modality of focused breathing with your diaphragm, expanding your HRV that is energy rejuvenating? Okay. And let's compare the two. Now, even if you were intent on doing exposure therapy, wouldn't you want to learn the skill of energy efficiency? So that you had that skill the night before, during that appointment, and afterwards. So, so these things can be teased out with good studies and funding and discipline. They will take some time. They do yeah. have to compete with all the probes and pills that uh, people want you to take, uh, which do have value, okay? I prescribe uh, procedures and do procedures and prescribe medications, but... They're always in support of autonomic rehabilitation. They are not leading the process. Oh, okay. That's good to know. I mean, it's good to know that they're in support of. Yes. So, so you know, th there's all kinds of things, right? If mm -hmm. I want to do that stellate ganglion block uh, to withdraw sympathetic, well, shouldn't I also... Shouldn't I be talking to you about letting go, trust, acceptance, right? Mm -hmm. Shouldn't that be the initial treatment as opposed to uh, putting a needle in someone's neck or, or shoulder or whatever, or prescribing a beta blocker for anxiety? So it's too easy to write that prescription. Uh, it, all the systems are in place because everybody makes so much money of it. So they make it so simple for me to prescribe, but they make it so difficult to, mm -hmm. to reimburse biofeedback and getting people devices. Yeah. Uh, the, and so uh, that's unfortunately the reality. Yeah, billing has long been a nightmare, just the complexity and the, you know, and the questioning and so forth. Um, and, and one understands there's going to be a certain amount of scrutiny there has to be, but it gets to the point where this becomes something, the inertia becomes so great that it funnels people into different directions, evidently. Uh, you know, can you, one can always as a clinician do something else that's not, 
as labor intensive. I mean, not that people do their own billing necessarily. Um, Ron, I'd like to just he, uh, uh, speak about an allied subject because we're, we're eight minutes away from, from the end. Oh, it, it time's just raced on. Um, interoception or the sense of an internal state of one's own, own uh, body organs and muscles, et cetera, is obviously by definition uh, an intriguing and compelling concept that's been gaining a lot of attention in recent years. Now, bearing in mind that interoception is so intimately linked with mood and pain perception, as well as heart rate variability, the potential for modica uh, modification and modulation seems enormous. I'm very intrigued to hear from you where you feel this is moving to and, um, and what, where the further potential thereof may take us. Absolutely. So, so if you look at the mind, the body, and the external world, and you are here to adapt to change, changes in the external world, or internal world, concussions, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. and, you and, and, and day goes into night and you have to approach night differently from day or maybe your job changed and you have to approach day and night. Different. So there is relentless external change and you have to adapt to that. So you need a, a flexible autonomic nervous system and you need to adapt to internal change as well. And so the way I would think of uh, different fear thoughts or thoughts or, or how to, categorize them. I, I have this little mnemonic, PF52. So uh, you can have fear thoughts from the past, PTSD, fear thoughts of the future, uh, like craving things like grades or drugs or whatever, and not getting them. So fear of the future and the past. And then the present, I break down into 52. Five mm -hmm external senses five and then two i just to remember that the vagus nervous is, is two two bundled in two branches one above the diaphragm one below so that's so so when you're taking a meditation class and today's task is to chew on a grape for five or ten minutes which i once did um <laughs> you are uh doing interoception of taste uh, and then you mm -hmm. can do with aromatherapy, interoception, practice, right? And so if you've lost the sense of smell after a COVID infection, you can do smell therapy. Um, but all of it is appraising changes of the internal and external environment so you can adapt to them. And so uh, interoception would be internal, right? External would be the five senses. So of you know, so people who are suffering from various autonomic bowel disorders, uh, uh, interoception is one of the big avenues of research. Now, uh, I think life is a paradox of pragmatism and idealism. And so the way I start, uh, again, is with heart interoception, because it is the uh, easiest electrical signal to measure and modulate. So again, I think it's heart interoception is a starting point for interoceptive training. And the most research is done on it because you can use HRV practice and breathing as a measure of interoception. And 
Interestingly enough, if, if you're not uh, a lover of the insula like I am, the insula is the part of the brain uh, that, so if you know about your amygdala, where your memories are, if you have PTSD and you've heard uh, of the amygdala, the insula helps to modulate the, the, your, your fear memories, the amygdala. Mm -hmm. It is also responsible for heart interoception. So we know that insula in meditators is bigger than non-meditators. So if you spend 10 minutes twice a day focused in on your heart and your breathing, it's not proven, but logically, you might be growing your insula, okay? That modulates fear memories. It mm -hmm. also modulates pain perception. So if you have chronic pain and you've heard this notion that you have a software problem, well, this could potentially grow the insula to modulate uh, fear and pain sensation. And one more thing, interestingly enough, it also helps modulate empathy. And oh, the way yeah. I think of empathy is suffering again. It's your ability to see and recognize other people's suffering. And when you're stuck in your own suffering, it's hard to have any empathy for other family members, et cetera. And, and that too is important. And so again, the breathing is transmission fluid for flexibility to maybe also start peeking in a little bit of room for acknowledging other people's suffering, mm -hmm. a little room for gratitude uh, and, and, and instead of this nonstop threat and pain. The insula is this huge intake and processes these interoceptive uh, sensations. So chewing on a grape for 10 minutes uh, or walking quietly and listening and feeling the crinkling of leaves, you know, when you're walking in the woods on your feet and listening close, that practice has value. Right. Yeah, no, sure. It's 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 expanding, and it's also opening one up to more experience, which we often see the opposite. People are closed down, shut down. Um, so it's it's very much a, an attempt at reversing that. Yeah, I can see that as well. Um, it also takes you out of yourself. Um, I know that's yes. a strange expression to use, but people do seem to understand immediately. You use it because they feel imprisoned and they it's it's in in their heads they're imprisoned of course so um, we're coming to the end of the show um ron i must thank you for an absolute eye-opener brilliant plenty to think of um uh, a much needed uh conversation about a most important uh intervention i like it mostly because it, it it, it mimics nature, it is nature. It's a natural uh, intervention that is simple as well. Um, we're well worth, the while the well worth the time and hopefully people who are listening will um, basically, you know, read up more about it or um, educate themselves and learn more about this very accessible uh, and, um, intervention. That's all I can say. Uh, I thank you very much for appearing on the show 
And uh, we hope to have you again sometime when you have the time, perhaps. Um, this is Dr. Trevor Campbell, um, your host at Healthscape. Until next time, thank you. Okay, um, Ralph, uh, um, Ron, excellent. Thank you. Um, pleasure. You know, I, 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 I was thinking while we were talking towards the end, I was thinking, I'm 65, right? And I've never, uh, you know, the way, <laughs> sounds pessimist, but the way things are going, you feel like, you know, you don't, you're not like in the old times wanting to be that many years younger. I did think if I were 10 years younger, if only I were 10 years younger, but I can tell you something. Um, you've sparked something. I think it's in your simplicity of presentation. And I was reminded by um, a famous, well, it was Einstein actually, who said, if you cannot explain it to a six-year-old, you basically don't know what you're saying. Um, and I certainly I'm going to read ravenously uh, without being 15 years younger. <laughs> it's very compelling. And honestly, when I look around, especially recent times, I cannot believe the cognitive drift in medicine. I'm not an authority in anything, really. Right. Uh, I don't see myself as a major authority in anything, but 41 years, my 41st year, and what when things start sounding foreign yeah it's it's troublesome it's troubling i'm, I'm yeah, yeah. You know. I, I i usually start with okay so pain management in the united states what do we know we know it's the most expensive we know it's the most dangerous and we can't prove it's better than anyone else okay that's where we start right right no no sure sure but you know just even having the conversations of showing people uh, for me the biggest advance uh, the, the biggest improvements i made was for once i had time and that itself was shocking to me that i wasn't you know racing about like a blue ass fly trying to you know here comes an asthma patient right. and so forth and could listen to them and could even explain why they their, uh, their notes didn't, they said they had to check the name on the notes because it didn't even sound like them and they were so hurt. I said, the writer, the specialist is writing for colleagues, he's writing for the regulatory college, he's writing for the lawyers who may sue. And it's a kind of presentation. And I used to put all my these special quotes that were their trigger points, I would quote them verbatim. And I insisted on putting them in, quest in, in quotations because I would, if they read it, they knew that I had, I mean, not oh, to- I do that, I slip. do that, I do that all the time. I love the quotes, you? they're, yeah, they're no, unique. No. They, they know you, you didn't make that up. No, no, and the other thing is they, they actually talk about it. They say, How, you remembered, I said, yeah. And they said, well, why would you write it down? I said, because there's the story yep. for logic, yep. but there's what is your I, hot buttons? I, I had it. I had a patient this morning, chief complaint, I put in quotes, I want my life back. Yes. She yes. had COVID and she wants her life back. And I, I did this and I even got like, it. well, it's not conventional. I said, that's no, that's all the more reason to do it. And I just dug my heels in and in the end, yeah. people just left it. But a, a wonderful work you do. And, and with the veterans, you know, I mean, I'm not American. I'm, well, I'm Canadian, I'm South African and Canadian. Um, but, you know, obviously people, you know, who've been injured, uh, you know, in yep. terms of serving and so forth, uh, they, they've got a good name in pain management or from what I know, but I know. Yes. 
Yes. And, um, and you know, much deserving of it. I'm, I'm, well, everyone deserves to get better. But it's been an absolute pleasure interviewing so. Okay. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. And now I have to get back on my hands. Yes. Okay. Have a, have a good weekend. Cheers. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.